it seemed that a lot of the undercovers had quite a, almost a choice of who they infiltrated. And we asked, why didn't you infiltrate the National Front or one of their splinter groups? A couple of them actually said, well, the right wasn't considered subversive. Right. So yeah, it's very much like Cold War era politics. You I mean, they might yeah. be Nazis, but they weren't communists. So, you know. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. In this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked, we go deep undercover. We talk to releasing researcher Chris Bryan, who traces the scandal which shook a generation of activists as a public inquiry currently gets underway. The Bristol activist turned investigator explains how police spies infiltrated and disrupted left-wing groups over decades and even fathered children with unsuspecting activists. Strap yourself in. It's a good one. Hi, Chris. Hi, Neil. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? All right. Thanks very much. Where am I talking to you? I actually live in Cardiff now. Over be, the bridge. Been gentrified out of Bristol, I'm afraid. Oh, have you? Well, you've been pushed out. It's well, too expensive, the rents. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, my partner had done a degree in Cardiff and then she got pregnant at the same time. So we moved here and then we intended to move back. But then everything got really bloody expensive in Bristol. It, so. is, it is mad. <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing story. I've read your article in the Bristol Cable. I've listened to some of your podcasts. And it sounds like you've led quite a interesting, fascinating life. I want I want to come on to some of the, the sort of state surveillance, you know, policing undercover research you've done, which is what you're kind of known for. But I guess before any of that, your background would have been in would I, would it be fair to say sort of activism, left wing activism? Yeah, anarchist specifically. Anarchist, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as you know, quite a rich tradition from Bristol in that. Sure. I was a late starter, so I was in my late twenties really when I started doing anything more than, um, I suppose, if you like, the beginning of my uh, activism was actually just going to raves and stuff like that, and then I got okay, from there yeah. from reclaim the streets and that kind of thing, and then you know. You might say some less exciting activism where you have to go to meetings and stuff like that, you know, rather than just dancing. I don't think people, perhaps some of the younger generation, this might sound condescending or patronising, but the, the, the that kind of 90 to sort of 93 rave scene stuff wasn't just about music. It was about, there's a lot of like anarchy and sort of over, overthrowing the status quo. And there were sort of people I knew, like football hooligans that were growing their hair, dropping out, you know, obviously yeah, taking yeah, ecstasy, yeah. going off, buying a van, traveling the world. And I suppose, yeah, it was the idea for me. It was kind of another one of people organizing stuff themselves, you know, yeah. rather than it, you hand some cash over and someone yeah. else does it for you. I mean, I had this pretty basic sure. idea, but that's, I suppose, because I was never somebody who, to most people who say anarchy, they think about chaos or, you know, mm. maybe throwing bricks at the police, but obviously anarchy yeah. isn't, isn't about that. But Yeah, explain what that is, you know, to, to, to the uninitiated, because people do think that anarchism is just smashing or, things up. You identify as an anarchist, yeah? So what, what, what does that look like? What does that mean? The basic thing for me, and the most important, is non-hierarchical. No one else is in a position to tell you what to do, apart from yeah. obviously on technical matters, like, for instance... Um, vaccination i totally go with the experts on that one but mm-hmm. in terms of like the way we live our lives generally you know anti-authoritarianism i suppose is like yeah the key for me because when you give 
too much power to too few people all goes wrong. That's, I suppose, I mean, that is in a nutshell, not a very sophisticated take on it, but you know, I'm not a great theoretician and I don't, yeah, yeah I won't pretend to be either. So, and you've kept that then you with, with age. Cause I, I mean, a lot, a lot of people I know sort of, you know, the older they get, that have maybe dipped their toe into that world or even immersed themselves uh, have kind of come out the other end and are now, you know, accountants and all that sort of well, stuff like that. I mean, well, I mean, I think the, I suppose the other yeah, misapprehension is like people who do that kind of thing are some, somehow different to most yeah. people. Like, but we, unless you like, you know, I suppose there are a few people who live in these sort of like secluded communes or live out in the country etc mm-hmm. a fair place to them but most people you know live in houses and pay rent and therefore they need to have like normal jobs yeah. as you know yeah. on, on top of everything else thinking back to how i got into activism in bristol which is where, where i got into it i mean yeah. i actually was i suppose always left wing because i grew up in a council state and i you know mm-hmm. i wasn't particularly well politically educated but i knew whose side i was on so to speak Sure, but yeah. and then I suppose because it was like the late nineties and like environmental protest was, I suppose what was going on. I just like yeah. walked into the old Friends of the Earth office on Picton Street. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, and started from there, and then soon got fed up with. No offense to people who work for Friends of the Earth, got fed up with them, and sort of got involved with people who who were involved at Cabelli Social Centre, now called Base, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, and how committed do you have to be to that? Is it a kind of full time commitment? Being a an anarchist. Well, I mean, it depends, doesn't it? I think I was 23 then. Yeah. I was actually doing a, a part-time master's at Bristol Uni at the same time, which I dropped out of. Okay. And then I quit my job at the call centre, and then, you know, I just... just that was it? You were in two-footed to the whole I was just, world. Yeah. yeah. And what kind um, of numbers are we talking about? In, very in, in small. And I, How many people that are kind of, you know, Very part small. Of the I mean, this is one of the things that, looking at the history of the groups that all these undercovers were infiltrating, we're talking about... How many anarchists were in Bristol at the time? Maybe a hundred. Yeah, <laughs> we're probably like you know. But then you know things like reclaim the streets makes it look much bigger because like those sure. people go along to that because it's a good laugh. You know, it's, it's a day out for some people, but for others it is a kind of real calling and a real yeah. um, way of I mean, life. I, I did. I think at one point I was going to meetings four or five times a week. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Which was like you know. I mean, I, and I hated meetings. So, uh... give me, give us an indication of uh, <laughs> of what kind of um, what kind of things you were campaigning and protesting against. I want. I'll, we'll move a little bit onto the turning point for you, which was in um, t- two thousand and nine. I, I mean, jumping forward, then I, I suppose towards more time where where I was probably spied upon was sort of like sort of getting into the sort of mid to late two thousands. Yeah. I suppose the two main things I was involved with was climate campaigning and anti-immigrant control. So like Bristol Rising Tide and Bristol No Borders. So and, and yeah. both those groups, they were European international groups. So with with little groups sorted all over the place. The spying, obviously, there was a big, uh, which was the Rising Tide group, wasn't it? In two thousand and nine, you were protesting at a uh, power station. Is that Nottingham? Is that where it was? Something like that? Yeah, no, that yeah, right. yeah, exactly. yeah. Right. yeah and, we, uh, and 150 people were uh, arrested, uh, you being one. Yeah, 114. 114. One of them being the undercover Mark Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. And, and it came to light that uh, this entire time there was an undercover police officer whose real name was Mark Kennedy, but you knew him as Mark Stone. That's right, uh, yeah. Was that a shock then? Did you have any inclination whatsoever that that was going no, on? No, none. I mean, 
despite my job, I wasn't somebody who was ever suspicious of anybody in those terms. Because we thought we were being spied upon, but not by individuals. We thought we were being monitored electronically because that was like, that'd be the budget way to do it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take any money to switch on a switch or point a directional mic at a meeting or whatever. So we never thought we were important enough to be spied upon in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess looking back, say we were at a particular protest or organising meeting, we we probably thought we spotted maybe like a a plain clothes officer who'd probably just been sent there for the day. That quite, that's what we thought the level would have been. Not how well did you know that individual? So what you you knew was Mark Stone. Well, I, I knew him. I wasn't say I was matey with him particularly. I think I was actually at the first time he was arrested <laughs> yeah. at the climate camp in two thousand and. 2006, mm. yeah, we blockaded a nuclear power station, I think, and he got arrested with me. We all got arrested, actually, everybody. He, because he was ubiquitous. He was like everywhere. Yeah. So if you were an anarchist and you'd done activism in the UK and even further afield, you would have come across him. He was everywhere. He was very busy uh, at yeah. the time. Obviously, one thought he was just a particularly dedicated activist, but. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't the case and it's a crazy story i I do remember reading this in the national press and it was just a huge kind of watershed sort of sea change moment that this this fellow basically infiltrated this movement for so long and he was um this went to court so basically to just give us some sort of detail because it took a couple of years to go to court and then effectively because of mark kennedy the court case was kind of effectively collapsed yeah, well, there were suspicions around him. I think towards the end, when he, I think he, he basically got laid off, got sacked as an undercover, and then he joined um, a private surveillance firm. Okay. And during that transition, I think to some extent, lots of people I hung around with were vegans. But his yeah. persona was he wasn't the vegan. He was kind of like slightly rough and tough working class geezer who ate meat, and yeah. then all of a sudden he became interested in the animal rights movement. Which everyone's going, uh, okay. what? But also, I mean, the thing was that his then partner, Lisa, that's a pseudonym, she was on holiday with him and she found his real driving license with his name on. Okay. And then after that, the trial of some of the people who got arrested at the Ratcliffe power station in Nottinghamshire collapsed because of his involvement, basically on the basis that his involvement in the action made the prosecutions unsafe and the judge agreed and then it all came out. When you say unsafe, would that is the is the charge that he's kind of almost like an agent provocateur? Yeah. Well, he was very much so. So we were at this this school, and so we had this big briefing. Everyone's yeah. discussing what kinds of things they're going to do. People were doing scouting trips around the area near the power station, and people were like spotting police cars here and there. And like, there's a big debate whether we should go ahead with the action. And he. <laughs> And he wow. gives a very rousing speech, Mark Kennedy, that we should, wow. in fact, go ahead with it. <laughs> wow. So. Crikey. So that was crucial for kind of stepping over the line then. Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, he basically, my involvement in the action was to turn up that day and get briefed. I wasn't in, involved too much in the run up to it. So, But yeah. I understand that he was involved more, more than that as well. But actually, the in terms of being an Asian provocateur and stuff like that, it's, it's, it's quite tight. In, in terms of the law, basically, say you get convicted for something, you say, oh, this guy made me do it, and he turned out to be a cop. You, basically, you've got to prove that you would have done otherwise if that person wasn't there. So it's quite a high 
bar to prove quite difficult that, you know, to prove that i'd imagine yeah so I, the, I, I, and there's quite a few other ones i think i mentioned another one where there's another guy marco jacobs who i knew better okay he yeah. was based in cardiff and i was pretty tight with lots of people that lived in cardiff south wales bristol and south yeah. wales activism around that time we were very much we were very much entwined socially yeah and stuff and he came to bristol quite a lot as well and he was involved in another action we were involved along with a load of people from south wales in the uh, protesting this liquid natural gas pipe plan, which runs through South Wales from Milford Haven. And we were planning a, a blockade at Milford Haven. And he was involved with the run-up meetings and that. And then a bunch of people were, were nicked, including him. His house was actually raided by the police. But because there was two separate groups of people arrested and the group that was with him, none of them, none of them got prosecuted, whereas the other group did. Right. A couple of those okay. people still have convictions standing. Um, and I, I know that still is being looked at, but so there's none of those red flag. You can't. There's not a time you can look back and just think, "Oh, that was a bit weird when when he did that or said that." Or well, do, you, or do you have any funny of these enough, moments? Marco, Marco. So prior to moving to Cardiff, he lived in Brighton, yeah, as a undercover. And in Brighton, he was a, he was a bit suspected, and he in Brighton he seemed to have. Ch- I mean, it's obviously it all sounds obvious in retrospect. Oh, you know, but the thing is, we didn't have any evidence of, of that. But so in Brighton, his persona apparently was very much of like a raggy kind of like, let's go and put this window through kind of activist. Yeah. And apparently that didn't seem very convincing. But by the time he moved to Cardiff, he, he, he adopted a, a different persona, which was probably truer to his real personality which is like a kind of a cynical kind of like ah this meeting's really boring let's go down the pub kind of guy (laughs) okay okay (laughs) which you know to be honest is not all that unusual in activist circle we mean i would much prefer to go down the pub and be in the meeting so (laughs) i'm really interested to know before we move on to this landmark policing inquiry which i know that you're quite connected to before we move on to that i'm also just really intrigued to know about the psychology of and, and how these people get chosen by the police and what the criteria you know, is it is it are they sort of trained for it are they particular type of people i mean because effectively i think on one of your podcasts you refer to them as professional liars well that's the whistleblowers words the sorry undercover. apologies apologies yeah the whistleblower obviously the, the inquiry was called five years ago but prior to the actual hearings we had like four years of preliminary inquiries which was yeah. basically the police using privacy arguments to stop it pretty much all information coming out but specifically their cover names and a lot of this was based around their personal circumstances and i think in that context peter francis said that you can't trust what any of these people say like he he himself we're all trained to lie professionally so yeah so what i mean would you i mean to be able to keep that up you know and there are people that have you know had children people have been in for several years i mean does it are they reporting back to the police the whole time or, or do they just go kind of you know you hear stories of people going kind of native don't you and, and actually they end up you know like like colonel fits in apocalypse now you just kind of go wild and let go i mean i'm yeah. I, I, I just fascinated to know what type of kind of person can can do that and keep it up for so long yeah, I mean, it's hard. So going back to the early days, because this all started in 1968, these deep infiltrations, one of the things we've learned from the inquiry is that from 1968, we think till like into the 80s, they literally had no training whatsoever. Really? <laughs> 
Wow. Zero training. Just chuck them in. They were all working for Special Branch already. Okay. They worked for the part of Special Branch, which was known as C Branch, which was, sorry, getting a bit technical here, but That's basically fine. these were the people that done the sort of like the normal Special Branch desk-based work, sort yep. of like reading left-wing newspapers and writing down all the names and addresses of people who put their names on petitions, that kind of thing. So they had a kind of lot of technical background knowledge of how left-wing groups operated and what they did. But in terms of specialised training to be an undercover officer, that didn't really happen until the 90s, I think. Really? And they became more absorbed into, if you like, mainstream undercover policing, the same kind of training that drugs undercover officers Right. Did I mean there's one guy, former drugs undercover guy called Neil Woods, who yeah. is very much a, a decriminalization of drugs guy. He's like an ex drugs cop who who mm-hmm. basically criticizes like drugs policy now. And he he actually turned up to one of the hearings, and yeah. uh, it's quite funny because there was always undercover saying they were in danger from all these activists. And he stood up in the inquiries. He was like, "Well, I'm responsible for like putting." all these drug gangs behind bars and I'm standing up here now in my real identity and like <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, that's yeah, all yeah. rubbish basically yeah uh, so, so it's definitely yeah. so it's kind of in the training more than in the personality I just kind of yeah, wonder whether I mean, it attracts well, a kind I of mean, sociopathic psychopathic kind of individual that can just put on a different mask you know and do they move if somebody suddenly gets pulled out from one undercover operation do they then get sent into another one and they have to put a different mask on well, I think so. In terms of personality, I think their personalities differed mm-hmm. quite a lot. I mean, I guess there were some people who just did their job, if you like. They didn't do, there was a phrase that the SDS, the Special Demonstration Squad, used, shallow paddlers. So people who just went to the meetings didn't really get involved so much in the people's social lives. Mm-hmm. And then there were other people who did, okay. who, if you like. Uh, and these were know, the people that were having children, Having children, yeah. Involving, you know. Yeah. Involving themselves in you know, every aspect of people's private lives. Uh, not, yeah. I mean, because there was, we think now there's around 22, 23 officers who had relationships, sexual relationships, and which amount, obviously, some of them had more than one relationship. So we're talking about 30 plus yeah. sexual relationships over, over the 50 years. And this is all coming out, isn't it? So we have in late 2020, there was an undercover police inquiry after a lot of lobbying from activist groups. Theresa May finally called this in 2015. The police have, you, you describe in your article as their delaying tactic. Explain what that means and what, do they, what are they doing? Obviously, with this kind of area, there's all kinds of reasons not to have the information out in the public domain so there's like all the if you like the the security reasons the policing the reasons official secrets act and all that kind of but stuff. then there's yeah. also they also ironically some people would say offensively use the privacy laws the saying they yeah. <laughs> if you like they've invaded all these other people's private lives and you know invaded their bodies yeah. they were not not ashamed at all to use the human rights act to defend their own privacy over 100 officers and every single one pretty much uh, went through this very long-winded process to stop their not most of them had the have most of just to explain so there's all the undercovers obviously had cover names yeah. um uh, and a lot of them wanted to keep even to keep their cover names secret so people couldn't even identify which under which of the people did did surveil their groups yeah i mean and, and this is this is not a and this is not by any means a kind this is a huge public inquiry i think it's, it's the biggest the second longest 
Well, uh, that's my bet. That's my bet. bet. Is it, it will, it will become since... by the time it finishes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it will become the second longest after the bloody Sunday inquiry. That was thirteen years. So, so basically, so the, the way the inquiry is divided up is divided into eras. So we've we've. we've we're we're kind of like almost at the end of the first era, which is 1968 to 1982. The way that we've still got to hear from the managers, if you like, the undercovers managers from that era, and that won't be happening now till uh, May next year. <laughs> you mentioned the special demonstration squad SDS. They're they're a part of the police. They're a wing of the police. They're based in London. So they were part of the Met, the Met special branch. So yeah. the Met special. So just to explain for people, the special branch of the police is political police. They don't exist anymore. They've actually been absorbed into counter terror now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but they were formed in eighteen eighty one or eighteen eighty three, depending who you listen to. Yeah. And they were formed specifically to fight. Um, in inverted comes the Finian threat, and then later sort of anarchists. I suppose special branch are less well known than MI5, but they, a special branch actually existed before MI5. But yeah. very much their histories were entwined, and and actually that's one thing that's come out from the hearings. We were kind of surprised about how much also Connection. MI5 were involved yeah. with the surveillance, yeah. of the day to day runnings of tiny political groups. How much they were interested in that. So let's let's look at the motivation of that. Yes, because you know, my big question is kind of why? What is such a threat to? feel the need to infiltrate some of these groups and your your sense is that there's a particular focus on more left-wing activist groups and some of the more insidious organizations like national front you talk about south africa they almost were given a bit of a pass by the sds and and that their focus was is more on left-wing groups than far right yeah i mean I spoke about, you know, the forming of a special branch. And I think that's, you know, it's institutional bias. And then I suppose when the revolution happened in, in the Soviet Union, that really was key. I mean, because from then on, that's how the British security state viewed, that was their bias. So anti-communism mm-hmm. at whatever cost. And obviously that was that was interrupted by the Second World War. But, you know, if you look at the history of what became MI5, pre-Second World War, they were far more focused on communists than the Nazis. I mean, they were still like liaising with what became the Gestapo in like passing information between them in 1936, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you, I, don't, I don't think you can underrate that. And you think that culture that culture continued yeah. up to the sort of 90s and the 2000s and to the present day? Yeah, so even obviously, I think things did change with MI5 post-Cold War. In 1996, MI5, for instance, they lost interest in subversion, political subversion, which generally meant any kind of left-wing activity, which was subversive to the state. Uh, But I think there was a a long hangover from that, and uh, especially with Special Branch and and their successor units. They they were looking for other people who were like that to infiltrate, so hence, in my era, I suppose, the anti-globalisation environmental movements that's where they they jumped onto next you know also obviously you know mentioned animal rights stuff that was key as well okay just going to jump in and do another advert which i do every week bristol cable is a membership organization so you can become a member go to the website and have a little look around and you can find out how you can contribute each month and have a say in what we do in the paper and also online and also guests for for this show and do follow us on any podcasters so you can get episodes straight to your phone or tablet or laptop cheers back to the chat 
almost a sense that if you're talking about in the 70s, 80s, maybe early 90s, organisations like the Anti-Nazi League were being monitored and being infiltrated far more than any of the, you know, far more than the Combat 18 National Front. Yeah. Yeah? Well, one of the interesting things, because it seemed that a lot of the undercovers had quite almost a choice of who they infiltrated. And we asked, why didn't you infiltrate the National Front or one of their splinter groups? A couple of them actually said, well, the right wasn't considered subversive. So it's very much like Cold War era politics. You mean, they might be Nazis, but they weren't communists. So, you know. Yeah, that 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 seems odd. Yeah. It, it, well, it but, but I suppose because, it's not if you think about the era of politics at the time. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. British state propped up yeah. the apartheid government by you know, yeah. trading with them and defending them. And a lot of this stuff, Chris, sounds, you know, if you're outside this conversation without the evidence that's coming through from this inquiry, it, yeah. it'd be very easy to just kind of go, oh, God, you know, it's just, this is just a conspiracy theory nonsense, isn't it? This is all wacky kind of stuff. It sounds like a James Bond film, doesn't it? Well it's, well, it's ridiculous. Literally, most of the reports that have been published by the inquiry are pretty mundane because they're reports on meetings, the meetings like I used to go to, mm. which are, you know, pretty boring, really. They're reports on women's liberation movement, bake sales, jumble sales. There's, <laughs> there's you know, a report on the Socialist Workers' Party babysitting rota. Yeah, um, yeah. There's reports on people going into hospital, which is obviously pretty, you know, sickening. People's children being born, so it's all pretty. I mean, see, James Bond. It's much more uh, mundane than that, I'm afraid. I just think the notion in general, the notion in general that organisations are being infiltrated by the police, and you've got people that are going undercover for sort of several years to various degrees of a sort of deep dive into that culture. And I think if you were to probably suggest this stuff had perhaps that trial not collapsed when this whole stuff was thrown to light it would have been pushed back as just being a conspiracy theory nonsense by the establishment if someone put it to me before i would have said that well they wouldn't bother as i'm saying we didn't think that they would have bothered with us to be honest we never thought we were on the brink of a revolution we were a threat to the british state in that sense you know yeah reading between the lines of all the stuff that's come out is if you like, these operations were in some ways the tip of the iceberg because we have these special branch reports from all these meetings. At the end of them, we have all these what are called registry file references. And these are the files that have been opened on people and organisations. And what it looks like from the small sample we have is like if you went to a political meeting or maybe even went down the pub with somebody who went to a political meeting, you would have had a special branch file opened on you. It's like mammoth there would have been tens of thousands of files opened on people you know Um, most people who didn't do any more than go to a meeting perhaps and people don't think that do they people living you know in the western democracy and kind of britain we think of kind of russia or east germany or china as having this sort of state insidious sanctioned spying i suppose one of the other things which i didn't mention in my article and somebody mentioned on twitter so i should probably (laughs) flag this up is that the amount of involvement that some some undercovers had in the running of the groups so in the more i suppose structured groups the more sort of more traditional socialist groups not the kind of ones i was involved with like swp and yeah all these other little groups they had positions like chairs and treasurers and a lot of these people took up these positions and like chaired meetings gave talks 
gave lectures on Marx and things like that to their fellow and sold uh, newspapers and, and stuff like that. Steering and controlling and, and yeah, the voted, voted yeah. become chairs of groups and stuff like that and, and directed groups as well to some extent. And would they direct but, them to do more uh, to, to break the law so then they can get well, the or they or the other way around? Are they trying to sort of dampen any revolutionary hopes to keep the lid on it? What, what's the sort of tactics? Yeah, I don't think there was a unified tactic. I mean, that did happen. So the two ones I knew were at the opposite pole. So Lamarck Kennedy, he was very much, I guess because of his actual real personality, he was an enthusiast yeah. for stuff. So he did probably get loads of people to break the law, as yeah. I say, specifically with Radcliffe. Whereas Marco Jacobs, he he was like an an agent demotivator, I would say. Demotivator. Yeah. yeah so uh, like, what's you know, the point? This is rubbish. Kind of yeah, thing. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's quit this and go down the pub. And, and I right. think that that was partially because he was suspected by some people. Maybe he was overreaching the other way. So not as, not yeah, as I didn't, yeah. I can't say I had any insight into that. I, you know, I thought he was a right bloke, you know? So I guess the whole modus operandi, the whole motivation of this stuff from the police is to control keep the lid on any groups that are or you know like you, you say more left-wing groups but any groups that are a threat or a potential threat to the status quo well yeah as, but, as they see it as they see it as, well i don't even i think one of the things that's come out actually is that really they didn't know what they were doing <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> to some extent, it becomes a self-perpetuating bureaucracy of information. Uh, we collect yeah. this stuff, we put it on file, and therefore we have to collect more information to update these files. They just do it. It's just, just a culture. It, it just became this like thing that they did. Yeah. I mean, that's not to say that they didn't do more serious things. Obviously, I don't mean to trivialise what they're doing. For sure. That. And on the serious kind of stuff, there is a, a kind of, I guess, a light-hearted element to all this. But actually, when you've had relationships where people have felt they've been lied to you've had children being born you've had using dead people's birth certificates and identifications you know, yeah that, that's 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 quite harrowing for some people yeah i suppose the other things to mention there is the blacklisting of workers which yeah. are builders and, and we know that some some information collected by the undercovers was used to blacklist workers mm-hmm. uh, yeah i mean those things are all how it's impacted on individuals yeah. mainly, but uh, I suppose what's harder to quantify is the effect it has on functioning of genuine democracy. If you believe we live in one, people would doubt that to some extent, but that is some in some ways less measurable. And, and, and I, I mean, to pay devil's advocate, I, I suppose um, probably most countries do this. It's probably happened here since time memorial. What, what's well, wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong with it? What's wrong with getting information about um, you know groups that potentially are sort of you know conspiring to certain degrees or less? I suppose as an anarchist, I would have expected to be monitored by the state, I guess. But yeah. for for most people who were spied upon, they were not that. You know, a lot of people didn't even have any re- revolutionary beliefs, let alone intent. So yeah. even, you know, MPs were spied on. It's interesting that both the squads that were used were Special Demonstration Squad and, and the later National Public Intelligence Order Unit. They were yeah. both actually formed under Labour administrations, but it's very much the case of the, the, the right of the Labour Party spying on the left of the Labour Party as well, because a lot of left-wing MPs are spied upon. What's wrong with it? Well, I mean, it depends... 
I suppose you can answer that question in many ways. Obviously, the breach of human rights in terms of privacy, the rights of public assembly. If you know what the police and the state are like, it shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody, should it? No, but the whole thing about invading people's lives and having the relationships to that extent was totally unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the the undercovers have used the excuse with their sexual relationships mm. that it was impossible to be in these groups and then not have a sexual relationship. Yeah. Well, I, I have to admit, personally, I can tell you it's quite possible to be in a group and not... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and not yeah. have a girlfriend, I have yeah. to say, sadly. Yeah. But, you know. It's a funny one, isn't it? That invasion, I think there's that, like you just said about an invasion of privacy, of, of being lied to. In, in an odd kind of way, this debate is sort of opened up with social media, hasn't it? In um, Yeah. In that people feel, you know, we've had the kind of changing of the um, data protection laws and stuff like that, that this stuff oh, yeah. is quite kind of hot now, isn't it? People do value well, that. Well, when people think, is when I talk to people, I say, oh, this is all, you know, old hat now because of like, you know, surveillance capitalism and all that. So everything's monitored through social media. But the thing was, uh, you know, if you like in my era, <laughs> Everyone think, oh, it was all electronic surveillance, you know, mobiles can be bugged and stuff. But the thing is, for them to get inside information, they're always going to have to have live agents in the field to get a certain types of information. So yeah. people shouldn't think, oh, this is all in the past. This probably is happening now to some extent. Well, I imagine it's probably slightly more technological as opposed to well, specific I mean, individuals, we, or do you think it still is? Do you think as we speak mm-hmm. that if there's an anarchist group tonight, there is going to be a policeman undercover going along? Well, just after the inquiry was announced, there was a whole lot of shredding going on at Scotland Yard. You won't mm. be surprised to know. That, that was, yeah. There was an investigation actually around that. The report on the shredding sort of gave us a few clues what came out next. And it seems that the units now responsible for monitoring political campaigners and are not allowed to have their own undercovers. Reading between the lines, it did seem to say they could probably borrow undercover officers from other units. Your work has become researching for the undercover research group. This is something for you that's ongoing thing, looking into exposing corporate police spying, even to this day. In terms of the inquiry, what outcomes would you like to see? The main thing with the inquiry for us and all the core participants, that's all the people that have been spied upon, is just getting as much information about what happened out as possible. In terms of what will happen at the end of the inquiry, whenever that is, which is like the report that the chairman, Sir John Mitting, will write and send to Parliament. We are not expecting very much from that at all. With the recommendations and stuff, whatever he recommends is going to be inadequate. To be honest, with the bill that's just going through Parliament, the Human Intelligence Source Bill, basically that bill allows all the stuff that's being discussed at the inquiry is now going to be legal anyway. So it's yeah. unclear what, what effect the report will have anyway. Most probably it will say all the, all the relationships and that kind of thing and all the, the stuff about the court cases, all that is really bad and it shouldn't happen, but, you know. And do you think it will stop it happening? Won't uh, change the law or, or bring in it, any more you know, police measures to, to stop this? I think the inquiry going on as it is now creates a political scene where it's hard for them to do that kind of thing as they did it before mm-hmm. yeah. that is you know but if you look at current political scene in terms of the government i mean yeah do you think any of those people are going to bat an eyelid if 
anything this happens, will they care? If you don't read The Guardian, where it's featured quite heavily, or watch Channel 4 News, you probably wouldn't know too much about it. Even if you're not an activist, even if, you you know, your political activity doesn't amount to anything more than voting every four or five years. I mean, it, it does affect the shape of the politics that you're presented with, because things that I was protesting about 10 years ago, for instance, climate change, those kind of groups were definitely affected by undercover policing. You know, who knows what would have happened if those deployments didn't happen in terms of the political agenda today, you know. Um, And some of those issues that you were campaigning on have become more mainstream anyway, haven't they, by definition? you know. And that's it, yeah. uh, I mean, a a brief run through the things people were were spied upon, women's liberation movement. Back in the 70s, they were campaigning on things like nursery provision, you know, (laughs) something which is not in any way thought of as political today. But back then it was, you know, uh, anti-apartheid stuff. Even, you know, Tories say now it wasn't that terrible. At the time, it was a contested issue workers' rights, the people that were blacklisted, the builders' workers, they were campaigning for things like having decent toilets on building sites, you know, things that you think, oh, that should happen. But these were all contested things that the state tried to push back on. This thing that, you know, if you like both the special demonstration squad and the, the successor units, they're you know, the main thing was public yeah. disorder. But if you think over the last 50 years, there's been plenty of instances of public mm. disorder. But most of them were spontaneous. They weren't the result Plan, of planning. any of the kind of small political groups I was involved with. If you think about you know, the, the riots yeah. in the 80s, this was all spontaneous, triggered by policing, generally speaking, yeah. Yeah. Um, of, of various kinds. We've seen, I would say, a rising in protests and riots in this country, but also you know in America. And lots of people have talked about, from both sides, the right and the left, accusing each other of having agent provocateurs involved in each movement to kind of create a bad name or to whip stuff up. Is that, and that's, you know, an ordinary person sounds a bit wild and wacky, but is is the likelihood that that is happening? I mean, generally speaking, in the UK, that has not happened. It's kind of, in some ways, a is a conspiracy theory here. As I say, Mark Kennedy and, you know, and one or two others did, take part in serious stuff but mainly speak i don't think we want to get into a position where every time somebody takes like i guess militant or direct action or oh, it must yeah. be state provoking that to me it kind of delegitimizes like if you know if someone hits me you're entitled to hit them back if that's somebody in yeah. uniform yeah. or whatever it doesn't make any difference to me so i don't want to say but every time somebody you know pushes back against a police officer that must be the work of an agent yeah. provocateur so in many regards, whilst we're saying that there is issues, the United Kingdom perhaps isn't as bad in terms of that as on no, I mean, it's, I mean, pretty places. low bar if, if, if you're saying that the, the police aren't that bad because they're not actually like <laughs> uh, being agent <laughs> provocateurs. I mean, if that's, if yeah, that's yeah, yeah. what... I was trying to end on a positive. Yeah, if yeah, if yeah, that's yeah, all you can ask of the police, then I mean, it's a pretty despairing yeah. kind of like... If that's, you know, I suppose in some ways, if you look at the way the police behave globally, then maybe yeah. that isn't such a... <laughs> Yeah. A ridiculous yeah. thing to say, but I don't think that's good enough. Bar really, is low. Say, the bar is low. Oh, yeah. they only spied on us, tried to disrupt us in other ways, but they didn't actually start a riot themselves, you know. Yeah. But one of the things, briefly, before we, yeah. if we finish, one of the things that's come out over the hearings is the number of undercovers who were assaulted by their uniformed colleagues on 
in various. Oh, oh really? Unwittingly, what? unwittingly, or on, well, they didn't or know, did they? They didn't know who they were, and they well, basically they said know. they were yeah, like yeah. doing hunt subbing or on a demo, and we're up to definitely double figures now of undercovers who have been battered in a public order situation. But so there'd never be a case when a uniformed police or riot police would know that one oh, of no, these guys no. is one. No, right? Okay, yeah. And that, and that gives you some insight of the way that protests was generally treated by the police more generally. Do you wonder on a human level whether that would give a different perspective then to some of the well, police that were able to, they, they might think, oh, hang on a minute, actually, maybe it's not as, you know. I mean, they, I suppose, I mean, I think they it gave them a very brief insight before they went back to their normal policing selves, I think, in summary. <laughs> yeah. a diplomatic way of saying it, yeah. Thank you, Chris. It's been amazing talking to you, and it's a really, really fascinating subject. If people want to find out more, I know you also have a podcast show yourself, don't you? Yeah, yes, Spy Cops Info, which is on all the places where you normally get your podcasts. And do look at the Bristol Cable article written by Chris, Police Spies, Broken Lives and one of the UK's longest running public inquiries. And also, if you want to know a bit more about the research, if you Google Undercover Research Group. That's right, yeah. Our web presence isn't fantastic at the moment, but we have all our stuff on this thing called powerbase.info. If you look for the Undercover Research Portal there, it has all our detailed reports there. Amazing. Thank you so much, Chris. I've really, really enjoyed that. And I, I learned a lot. Fascinating subject. And, oh, thank um, you. Good luck uh, with, uh, with with the continuing inquiry. Oh, thank you. Thanks for talking to me. Cheers, mate. That's it from Bristol Unpacked this week. Many thanks to Chris Bryan for a fascinating conversation. Next week, we'll be back with another great topic and a great guest. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes, and if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable, along with 2,000 others, to create a new kind of media for the city.